listening to the sermon podcast of Brockport First Baptist. We are a progressive American Baptist congregation located about 20 minutes outside of Rochester, New York. To learn more about our church and support our ministries, please visit BrockportFirstBaptist.org. I don't think this reading in the Bible needs any preface. It's foundational. I will share that as I reread it last night, I was thinking Jim goofed up and we should have had Larry Carter read this with his <laughs> bass voice and deep sound. It would have been wonderful, but I'll do my best. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void and darkness covered the face of the deep while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be a dome in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. So God made the dome, and separated the waters that were under the dome, from the waters that were above the dome, and it was so. God called the dome sky, and there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. And God said, let the waters under the sky be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good, Then God said, let the earth put forth vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees of every kind on earth that bear fruit with the seed in it. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed of every kind, and trees of every kind bearing fruit with the seed in it. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the dome of the sky to be separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be lights in the dome of the sky to give the light upon the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night, and the stars. God set them in the dome of the sky to give light upon the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the waters bring forth swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the dome of the sky. So God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves of every kind with which the waters swarm and every winged bird of every kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. So good morning again, everyone. There it is. Good morning. Excellent. <clears throat> Wondering, it's like, is this thing on? Yeah, it's good. Um, before we get started, um, I just want to do a quick reminder. I think I talked about this last week. Um, 
but we are now recording our sermons and putting them on our website as audio recordings. So um, especially if you submitted a question um, during our Beatitudes series but weren't here last week for the Q&A message, you'll want to go on our website and check that out because you can listen um, to the questions we got uh, there. And then also midway through the week, we recorded a follow-up to last week's message where I covered some of the questions that we didn't get to in church last Sunday. So check that out. It's on our website. You hit the sermons button. You should be able to find that. We're starting a new uh, sermon series today that I am very excited about. Um, It focuses on the book of Genesis. Um, We're going to be looking at the opening section of Genesis, uh, roughly from the story of creation in Genesis 1 to God's covenant with Abraham. And this is a super familiar part of the Bible for many of us. It's got a lot of the classic Sunday school stories. Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, um, the Tower of Babel, Noah's Ark. If you've ever tried to read through the Bible, there's a good chance you at least made it through this section. Hopefully. Um, And today we're going to look at the creation story in Genesis 1. But before we get into all that, I've got to tell you all, about my mom's banana pudding. Here we go. And I have to apologize because this might make you a little hungry. Um, My mom makes the best banana pudding. She makes it every year on Christmas Eve. It's homemade uh, with uh, layers of pudding and fresh banana and vanilla wafers. And I don't know if it's some kind of black magic or what, but I swear to you that even with all that gooey pudding, the wafers somehow stay crispy. It's like a Christmas miracle. And the first step to making banana pudding, if any of you have ever made pudding before, is to boil the milk to make the pudding. But you can't just dump a bunch of milk in a pot and set it on high to bring it to boil because it'll burn. So you've got to boil it very, very slowly. And you've got to stir it the entire time. Every Christmas Eve, I remember my mom, my uncle, my dad, and myself, we would all take turns stirring this milk for what felt like hours. It was probably like 20 minutes, but as a kid, it felt like that milk was never going to boil. But we all kept stirring it anyway because the first step is that important. If the milk burns at all, even just a little, that disgusting taste of burnt milk is going to permeate the whole pudding. It doesn't matter if you follow every single step perfectly from there. If you mess up that first step of the recipe, the whole dish is ruined. I think the opening chapters of Genesis work kind of like that. All sorts of theological battles have been waged over how we read these first stories. And our reading of these stories will shape the way we read the rest of the Bible, for good or for not so good. Some people read the opening chapters of Genesis very rigidly, with no sense for the nuance, the context, the poetry of these these first stories. And so they they come away with a rigid, overly literalistic reading of the entire Bible. Then on the other end of the spectrum, there are folks who read a book like Genesis and just come away confused. We find the stories alarming, confusing, maybe even offensive. And so they hold the entire Bible at a distance. There are very destructive readings of Scripture that find their origins in a misreading of Genesis. These stories have been used to promote sexism, 
racism, slavery, religious bigotry, you name it. If we want to read the Bible well, we have to read Genesis well. And reading Genesis well begins with understanding the community that produced this text. We're going to talk about that today, and today's sermon is going to be a bit of a history lesson. Um, And if you don't like history, if history is not really your thing, that's okay. I will say, though, this history includes genocide and a sea monster. So it might be more interesting uh, than you're expecting. The first thing to know about Genesis is that it's really, really old. There are stories in this book that are up to 4,000 years old. That means these stories, some of them, are as far removed from the time of Jesus as the time of Jesus is removed from us. That's a long time ago. And like most stories from the ancient world, the stories of Genesis survived for centuries by being passed along orally from generation to generation. Most people couldn't read back then, even fewer could write. And so people preserved these stories with the best technology they had available, their mouths and their ears. There are about a dozen different theories about how all these stories came to be written down, how they were all put together, who did it, why they did it, when they did it. We don't really have time to get into all that today. But one thing we're pretty sure of is that the book of Genesis took its present form, the form we have now, during the Babylonian exile. And that is incredibly important. The Babylonian exile was a historic event. Uh, We know a lot about it because it was documented by both the Jews and the Babylonians, so you have two sides. Um, The city of Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonians in 587 BCE. Uh, This is a picture. Well, it's an artist's rendering. They didn't have any cameras. Um, But in the decade or so leading up to this, the Babylonians destroyed most of the Jewish kingdom. All the different towns and villages had already been leveled, and all the survivors fled to Jerusalem. Because Jerusalem had an army, it had high walls, but as you can probably guess, that didn't save many of them. The Babylonian army laid siege to Jerusalem for three months. During that time, many of the people in the city died of either starvation or disease. And once they broke through the walls, the Babylonians laid waste to the city. They destroyed everything. They destroyed the temple, they destroyed all the houses. They massacred the people. It's estimated that less than half the inhabitants of Jerusalem survived. But of course the Babylonians didn't stop there. They rounded up the wealthiest, best educated, and most able-bodied survivors and sent them off to Babylon in exile. This is a picture, a drawing, of the exiles being led out of Jerusalem as it burns behind them. They were led off to Babylon essentially as slaves, captives, exiles. Those who were left behind were forced to intermarry with survivors from the neighboring people groups that the Babylonians had conquered, kind of diluting the cultural identity of the people. And it's in Babylon, during the exile, that the book of Genesis was finalized. All these stories, oral and written, brought together into the form we have today. Now, if you're anything like me, the first question you ask is, why? Why after all this? Why after everything they'd been through, do the exiles produce a book like Genesis? And I think there are at least two answers to that question. The first is practical. 
cultures don't usually come back from something like this. There's a lot we don't know about Israel's neighbors, their history, their religion, um, because the Babylonians wiped them out before they could write anything down. The exiles didn't have a country anymore. Most of them had lost their families. For all intents and purposes, they were no longer a people. And so they write these stories down in the hope that maybe someone will remember them. That's one reason. The second reason you write a book like Genesis during the exile is political. The exiles would have been immersed in Babylonian culture, surrounded by Babylonian propaganda, forced to bow down to idols of Babylonian gods. And in that context, the book of Genesis is written as an act of resistance. The Babylonians had their own creation story. It was in a book called the Enuma Elish. And the Enuma Elish was the famous creation story of its day. Kids would have learned about it in school. People would have taught about it in the temples. Um, Everyone in Babylon knew the Enuma Elish. It was that central to their identity as a people. And the Jewish exiles would have heard the story too. And there's a lot we can learn about the story they told in Genesis 1 if we read it alongside the Enuma Elish, the Babylonian version. The Babylonian version of creation begins with a war between the gods. You have the elder gods on one side under the leadership of Tiamat. She was the goddess of the sea, going up against the younger gods, the hotshot gods, led by Marduk, the god of the sun. Marduk also happened to be the patron god of Babylon, so you can probably guess how this battle turns out. That's actually supposed to be uh, Marduk and Tiamat in the picture on your bulletins, kind of facing off, duking it out. Uh, Marduk's the the more human-looking one. Tiamat is is a sea monster, essentially, goddess of the sea. I told you there'd be a sea monster. Um, According to the story, Marduk challenged Tiamat to one-on-one combat to bring an end to the war. The winner would be declared king of the gods. Tiamat accepted the challenge, which was a big mistake, Because in the ensuing battle, Marduk captured Tiamat in a net and killed her with a bow and arrow. Tiamat Tiamat was uh, Marduk's grandma, by the way. So if you think your family dynamics are bad, take heart. And then in his first act as, as the king of the gods, Marduk decided to create the heavens and the earth. And he used Tiamat's lifeless carcass to do it. He cuts her body in two pieces and uses one half to form the earth. But keep in mind that Tiamat is the goddess of the sea. So the earth that Marduk formed out of her body was formless and void, wild and waste. It was a chaotic, watery mess. And so Marduk took his sword and he cut holes in Tiamat's body so that dry land could appear. Then Marduk took the other half of Tiamat's body and he hammered it into a dome and he placed the dome in the sky, separating the waters above from the waters below. And there was evening and morning the first day. I added that last part. Um, But if you know the creation story from Genesis, you probably noticed some similarities. In both stories, there's a God who creates the heavens and the earth. In both stories, the earth begins as this watery void. Dry land has to be brought up in some way. 
Both stories even include the separation of sea and sky and the creation of a dome to hold up the heavens. There are a lot of similarities between these two stories. You could even say that the the authors of Genesis were kind of riffing on the Babylonian version. But it's the differences between the two that really speak to us. That's what sheds some light on this story. The first difference is Tiamat. The Babylonians had multiple gods. They were polytheists. The Israelites only had one. But Tiamat still shows up in the Genesis version of events. And it might not be where you think it is. In verse 2, we read that the earth was a formless void, and darkness covered the face of the deep. Now, that word translated deep is the Hebrew word tahom. Can I hear you all say tahom? Tahom. Very good. Excellent pronunciation. Tahom refers to that watery chaos. It can also be translated abyss. But if you add just one syllable to the end of that word, tahom becomes tehomat. Tiamat. Do you, do you hear the similarity between those two words? Tehom, Tiamat? That's because Tehom is the Hebrew cognate of the Babylonian Tiamat. But Tiamat looks very different in this version of the story. For the Babylonians, Tiamat was a rival god. She was a violent sea monster who had to be restrained by Marduk and killed before he could create the heavens and the earth. In the Genesis version, though, Tiamat is more of a lapdog. The Spirit of God hovers peacefully over the waters, as if to say, good girl. And then all God has to do is speak. Let the waters be gathered together into one place and let dry land appear. And the Tahom obeys. Israel's God is stronger than Babylon's God. The lack of violence is another huge difference between these two accounts. Um, The Babylonian creation story is loaded with violence. But in Genesis 1, there's really no violence to be found. According to the Babylonian version, creation emerged almost by accident following this war between the gods. It was a byproduct of violence. But in Genesis, creation is the intentional act of a loving God who calls creation good. And the Genesis account of creation is incredibly uh, orderly and deliberate. God makes the world in, um, I had one too far. God makes the world in six days. On the first three days, God creates by separating things, making space for creation to breathe. And then on days four, five, and six, God creates by filling the spaces God created. Let me show you what I mean. On day one, God separates light from dark and heaven from earth. Then on day four, God fills the heavens with the sun, moon, and stars to govern the light and the darkness. You see that connection? Yeah. On day two, God separates the sky from the sea, the waters above from the waters below. Then on day five, God fills the sky and the sea by creating birds and fish. You can probably see where this is going. On day three, God separates the land from the ocean and then fills the land with all sorts of life 
on day six. The point here is not how long it took, or how many days there were, or what constitutes a day. The point being made is that unlike Marduk, Israel's God creates deliberately, with a plan, with intentionality, and out of love for creation. God calls what he makes good. There are a bunch of other differences between the two creation stories, but the last one I want to look at is the sun. Poor Marduk. Remember that Marduk, uh, the chief god of the Babylonians, was also the god of the sun. And that's pretty common. You find in most ancient cultures that the sun is worshipped as a god, usually the, the chief god. And that's because the sun gives light. The sun is what creates light. And light enables life on earth to flourish. But notice in Genesis that light is created on the first day, while the sun doesn't show up until day four. In fact, the sun isn't even mentioned by name in Genesis 1. It's just one of the two great lights God creates to govern the sky. Marduk gets demoted big time in the Genesis account of creation. So insignificant, he's not even worth mentioning by name. In the context of exile, this creation story is downright treasonous. If you ever read uh, the book of Daniel, for example, which is all about the exiles in Babylon, you know people got thrown into fiery furnaces and lion's dens for refusing to acknowledge the Babylonian gods. So telling a story like this, as a Jewish exile in Babylon, could easily get you killed. I don't know about you, but for me, that kind of relativizes all the little debates and arguments that Christians today have over Genesis. All those efforts to quote-unquote defend this creation account look kind of small if we consider them in light of the gravity of what this story was really getting at at the time. The exiles lost everything to the Babylonians. They had every reason to question their God and to fear the gods of Babylon. And yet they respond by telling a story like this. They remain faithful to their God and raise a defiant fist to the empire of Babylon when everything had been lost. I want to close with a few takeaways, um, a couple key ideas that I think are important to remember as we study Genesis together over the next few months. First one, we need to remember that we are all guests here. Genesis is a profoundly Jewish book. Christians like to think of Genesis as our book, and it is our book too, right? It sits at the beginning of our Bibles, and it's very central to our faith. But this is Israel's book first and foremost. It's the story of their origin as a people. And it's a book that held them together through an unimaginably challenging test of faith. I get a little taken aback whenever I see Christians rip Genesis out of context and use it like a grenade in some theological argument. We would all do well to remember that we are visitors here. And because of that, we need to read Genesis with a degree of humility and reverence. That's my first takeaway. Second takeaway is that, um, this is a tough one. As Americans, 
we are way closer to Babylon than we are to the exiles. Our experiences, our culture, our history has much more similarities to that of the Babylonians than to this small band of exiles. Babylon was the undisputed superpower of their day. No one could touch them or even come close to their military and economic power. And the Babylonians built their empire on the blood of indigenous peoples using slave labor. Now, don't get me wrong, we've come a long way. America is nowhere near as brutal as the Babylonians were, but we are the world's reigning superpower. We're pretty untouchable. And we have a very mixed history when it comes to how we accumulated all this land we call our own. So we need to be very careful as Americans that we don't read this text the way Babylon would have read it. I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon that the book of Genesis has been used in very destructive ways. And the only way to avoid that is to read this book as the Israelites would have read it, with an eye toward the marginalized and an openness to self-critique. One last point I'd like to make is about how a book like Genesis can still speak to us today. If you've ever lost something dear to you, if you've ever endured your own experience of exile, maybe you're in it right now. If you've ever wrestled with questions like, who is God? Where is God? Is there even a God? Is there any meaning or purpose to this messy, painful, at times beautiful thing we call life? If you're someone who's wrestled with questions like these, you're in luck. Because these are the questions at the heart of the book of Genesis. It's a message of hope in the midst of defeat. And a proclamation of order in the midst of chaos. Let's pray. God, life is messy. Sometimes this world of yours doesn't make much sense to us. We thank you for the way you preserved your people through unimaginable pain and trauma. And we thank you for continuing to pour out your grace on us today. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with us on Facebook at Brockport First Baptist, on Twitter at BrockportFB, and on our website, BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. This has been a production of Brockport First Baptist.